Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods. The Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom. After a three-month-long wait, Jason Fry's The Last Jedi novelization is finally here. We break down some of the key moments and characters from this film adaptation. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, guys. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to the show where we are talking all about The Last Jedi novelization. We're really excited. We've read it. We're here for this. <laughs> it's here after such a long wait, it feels like. I mean, feels since, like when did so we have to, yeah, since when did we have to wait for a movie to book novelization? It's great. I mean, I'm glad that we got all this extra stuff and a lot of time could be put into it, but... Man, it felt like a really long time. It's March. It, <laughs> it's March. Where has it been? <laughs> yeah, it, it does feel like a really long time that they had to wait. But honestly, can you imagine? Our, like, we were out of weeks to talk about The Last Jedi in January. I feel we, we, <laughs> we had a number of episodes just about the film. I can't imagine trying to cycle in the book into all of that, honestly, from a podcasting schedule. <laughs> It's so true, actually. <laughs> now that you say that, oh my god, <laughs> it's it's good. We, maybe we could have done like mid February, but then we would have had Rebels. Honestly, this yeah, is no, this the best. is yeah, this, this is, is good. The best. This is good. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So it's been a while since we like we're back to our biweekly schedule. So what's up? How have you been? What's new? Etc. Now, whenever you say etc., I think you're going to say Excedrin. I don't know why, but I just I always fill in the blank of Excedrin <laughs> when you start to say et cetera. Um, but I'm good. I'm on spring break currently at, at the end of spring break, actually, sadly. Uh, but I'm in Florida. My parents have a house down here. And um, exciting. I actually got to meet up with Jim and Alex from a Star Wars comic. And we met up in Orlando. And we got to do Secrets of the Empire, which you did a couple weeks ago. But I finally got mm -hmm. to do it. So it was really fun. I was really excited to get to do it with them. They've already been through it before, actually. And so this was their, I think their second time, maybe their, I think their second time going through it. So they kind of knew what to look out for, the like Easter eggs that were in um, the, the I almost said maze, but the the rooms or whatever. It's honestly experience. kind of like a yeah, maze. it's a little bit like a maze. And so that was really fun. Um, I didn't use my gun properly at first. <laughs> I like couldn't shoot it properly or your blaster, excuse me, your blaster. So they're like, this is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really fun. It's definitely one of those things that I don't feel like I can properly describe unless you've done it. You know, like know. people I tell know. you what it's like, but you don't really get it. I, I mean, I had never done VR before, me and either. I'm like so blown away by the entire concept, and it like makes me so excited for the like the future of VR. I I wasn't even really like fully into it, or even into the idea of the fact that that's like really the the future. And now I'm like, oh, I can totally see why. I can see why people are like buying into this, just because it is so cool. 
Yeah, no, it was it was really cool. I remember we were like, I didn't realize how uh, tactile it would be. Like, I knew you could, like, pull levers and, like, push some buttons and stuff like that. But at one point, there were, like, seats. And Jim and Alex were both like, yeah. sit down, Caitlin. There are seats. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then they're like, and K2's in it. And they're like, you can, like, touch K2. You can touch K2. I'm like, you guys are playing with me. There's not going to be anything there. <laughs> I'm going to look <laughs> foolish. And they're like, no, do it. And then there was K2SO there. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So if you guys are in uh, Disney World or Disneyland, and it has some other pop-up places too, right? Yes, in London as well. Yes. So yeah. definitely, it's not it's not that expensive, one thing, and it's really fun. Like, mm-hmm. heart-pounding, adrenaline, really fun. So definitely give it a whirl. Yeah. So now it's been two episodes that we've plugged that. So plugged that. So they should pay <laughs> us to go another time. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so the void, if you want to sponsor us, like let us know. At Sky Talkers Pod. Um, I just I, I wanted to mention though, before we get started into our last Jedi conversation, that we have a really awesome listener, Shannon, who watched the all the Star Wars films in our Sky Talkers Machete order, which if you're not familiar with, is we we watched it we did a whole series on our podcast last year where we watched the series in um, what we deem as the Sky Talkers machete. So it goes The Phantom Menace, A New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, and The Force Awakens. And she added in Rogue One and she did a whole video about it. So I'm going to link that in the description below if you're interested about her experience watching it. Cause I mean, it kind of adds a little bit to our discussion of it. And it was great. It was really cool to see her yeah. actually going out and watching them in the way that we did. I know there have been a couple people who we know of who have done Sky Talker's Machete Order. And so if you've done it and want to tell us about your experience, please, because we are obsessed with different orders of Star Wars now, uh, like Shannon adding in Rogue One, her talking about the transition from Phantom Menace to Rogue One. So interesting. I really want to do like a mini marathon now of Phantom Menace, Rogue One, and then A New Hope. So that might be a future episode of Sky Talkers. (laughs) Just be on the lookout for that. But uh, thank you so much, Shannon, for your video and for giving Sky Talkers Machete a whirl. It was really fun to watch your live tweet of it too. Yes, definitely. So before we get into our different parts and the way we talk about novels on the show, we just want to give our general caveat that we can't cover everything. And as much as like this book is so rich and there's so many things and that like anxiety builds in in us when we're about to mm-hmm. record, that's like, oh my God, are we going to be able to discuss this intelligently because there's so much to cover. Um, so we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we hope that we cover some really good parts and, you know, we'll get right into it. Mm-hmm. So in part one, we're going to give a general review of the book and kind of talk a little bit more about novelizations, pretty much akin to how we talked about the Revenge of the Sith novelization. And then in part two, we're going to be talking about the characterization of a lot of our favorite characters from The Last Jedi. Yes. And then in part three, we're going to do a similar thing again, what we did in our Revenge of the Sith um, novelization discussion, which is Lectio Divina, where Caitlin and I kind of swap quotes from the book and kind of give our first impression and what it inspires us about. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. 
All right. Part one, general review of Jason Fry's The Last Jedi novelization. So, Charlotte, what were your initial impressions once you finished this book? Okay, so I I loved it. I think it's a really great companion to the movie. I'm really happy that Jason Fry wrote it. I really liked his writing style. It was very clear. Um, I'm sure listeners, longtime listeners, want to know how I think it compares to the Revenge of the Sith novelization, which is my favorite thing ever. That is still my favorite thing ever. It didn't really top it for me, but I don't think it needs to. And what about you? I think I have to agree. I mean, obviously, I was late to the program on the Revenge of the Sith novelization, but it was like Revenge of the Sith was just gut-wrenching all the way through (laughs) and Mm -hmm. like really pulled at your heartstrings pretty much throughout the whole course of the book. And whereas The Last Jedi definitely elicited those emotions from me, it wasn't as constant. Like it wasn't – I feel like with the Revenge of the Sith book, everything I read, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, my heart, you know, Um, because and I think that's just due in part to the fact that Revenge of the Sith is not only the close of a trilogy, but at the time was the close of a saga. And so everything really had so much more weight because Matthew Stover was pulling in these things that were relating to the entire to the prequel trilogy that had already happened. And then also to the original trilogy and then to the saga as a whole. He had a lot of those things to pull on that really gave this like sense of place within the saga to Revenge of the Sith. And I think the Last Jedi book will probably have that once the the trilogy is complete. But right now it, it doesn't just because of its place as the middle chapter. And that's not a bad thing. It's just they're very they're in very different places in like their character's story. You know? So yeah. I think it would be impossible yeah. for the Last Jedi to have that kind of weight just due to the fact that it's the middle chapter. Yeah, and The Last Jedi is a like a transitory novel. Like mm-hmm. it's in the middle. It doesn't have you mentioned this, it doesn't have such a huge weight as the culmination of the saga. And I think that we I mean, we even talked about that on our show about how, you know, Matthew Stover was able to do all these like huge grand gestures and make these like extremely elaborate metaphors to kind of bring it all to a close. And it has that, I mean, that book just has like this extreme tragedy level to it. And mm-hmm. this book couldn't do that. And I I felt that, but in the same way, I realized that it would never, it's never going to be like a one-to-one comparison mm-hmm. for me just yeah. because it, it can't be. But the thing is, is that it'll be interesting in two years when we have a similar com- conversation about whatever comes out about episode nine's uh, novelization <sighs> Because even then, <laughs> there's a dog in the background, by the way, guys. I'm on spring break. I'm pet sitting my uncle's dog, and he's not super well behaved. So I apologize <laughs> in advance for him. Anyway, I was saying that when we have the episode nine novelization, I do wonder what that's going to be like. Because even though that will be a culmination of a trilogy, I'm not so positive that it is the culmination of all of Star Wars altogether. And we we know that just because of the director announcements and everything. It's it's not it. So the mythos is not all set. And um, I think that that's just the nature of these types of novels, mm-hmm. you know, and I, in the way that Lucasfilm Publishing is now. Oh. You can't have the Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, too, you, you start having that conversation again about how this trilogy is – formed by a lot of different minds at very different times, <laughs> too. You yeah. know, like with the prequel trilogy, you know, the Phantom Menace novelization, the Attack of the Clones, it's like maybe you didn't have all the pieces right there 
but you knew where it was going to end. And it makes me wonder how much they give authors like Jason Fry about what's coming in the future. And from interviews we've heard from him and others like Claudia Gray and Zyla Dawson, it doesn't sound like they give them much of anything in terms of what's coming ahead, unless it's on a need to know basis. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important to remember, particularly with the sequel trilogy novelizations, because as they like put on the cover and in the acknowledgements, it's an adaptation of that movie by Ryan Johnson. Um, It's like supposed to be one-to-one. And while there are all these callbacks and things to other films and and other movies, it's really hard to have it um, be building towards the future because I doubt that Jason Fry knows much of anything about what is coming down the line for our characters, Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. And it's I'm I'm glad you brought that up about what, what is included in the novel because something I really, really loved that I don't think a lot of previous novels have done in Star Wars, but this this novel really brings together so many additions to to the canon that we've gotten in books and comics mm-hmm. in little snippets and um, short stories and it was so fun to like read certain lines and be like, oh my God, I remember reading that in Leia Princess of Alderaan. I remember that from Shattered Empire, uh, that comic series. And it, it, it it's so nice for fans who have actually been following that. And we talk a lot about like whether or not you should be able to, you know, go into a movie um, and without that back, like, y- you know what I mean about mm-hmm. how, whether books and everything should be, the fallback of understanding a film. Like required required reading in order to really get yeah. Star Wars, you know, that whole discussion. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it absolutely shouldn't be. But it's so fun when it's included in the novelizations. And we get these little snippets. And it's just a reminder as fans of the history that now we are getting to know so much better. Yeah, absolutely. And I love too because I've read you've read more than I have, particularly I I did read Shattered Empire, but it was so long ago that I don't remember it. But it's these things that have kind of like nestled in my in the Star Wars part of my brain <laughs> where I don't really necessarily remember them all the time. But then when I see them in books like The Last Jedi, I'm like, Oh wait, I've seen that before. Like, this isn't a new word to me. I I may not remember all the details around it, but I know that it exists in this world already. And that's really fun. It just kind of builds to – adds to the world building of Star Wars as a whole and to our characters and and kind of just a reminder that they exist in more than one setting and in more than one timeline too. And it really gives a fuller picture, I think, too, of our characters as well, like remembering that they've had – these different experiences with different characters because I know a lot of the time I can tend to, especially with characters like Poe who are of course the main character, but not like a main, main character, you know, like forget that they exist like outside of the sequel trilogy timeline and like the saga films, you know, like they have, they're being written other adventures about them. And sometimes I think I kind of lose sight of that in favor of the, the main saga films. Yeah. Did you have a favorite, like, inclusion from the rest of canon? I really liked, uh, come as no surprise, it's like a Dave Filoni mention, basically, but Rose talks about baby convories and uh, the Tuca cats. (laughs) She's, like, talking about, like, animals. Yeah, I remember that. She brings up the convores and the Tuca cats. And I was like, Jason Fry, you're a Dave Filoni fan? I'm a Dave Filoni fan. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it was fun because I know what those creatures look like. And so I know what she was talking about. And it was it was kind of cool. And if you're not – like if you don't know what those things are, if you don't watch animation, that's fine. Um, but it, it's like, oh, okay, there are these other kinds of animals. And, you know, they call it a tuka cat. So you can kind of get a little picture of how it is. And I think they call it – he calls it a, a convore chick in the book. So, you, you, you know, you're like on a bird – bird imagery so yeah. they give you a little bit to go on but they're not going to really define it for you whereas if you are familiar with those terms then you're like oh i know what a convoy looks like i know what a tuka looks like which is really fun um but what about you what were some of your favorite callbacks or call shout outs i guess um my favorite i have two um i really loved the we got a lot of Poe in this novel and kind of understanding his motivations and everything, but I really appreciated. it. I mentioned it before. Um, if you guys haven't read it, there's like, I think it's a six issue comic series that takes place right after uh, Return of the Jedi mm-hmm. um, called Shattered Empire that kind of, and in the book, in the novelization, um, they, Poe talks about his upbringing on Yavin 4 and how his mother, Shara Bay, went on a mission with Luke. And that mission is the Shattered Empire comic series. And it felt so nice to kind of get that call back and kind of, Poe talks about how he never really, that's the only time that he was kind of acquainted with Luke Skywalker and had a relation to Luke Skywalker. And that was a good definition point in my brain for um, what Poe knows about like <laughs> these like mythic heroes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I also really loved all the, Leia calls Haldo Amelin at one point, and it's like, oh my god, I feel like only quote fans who've read stuff know that her first name is Amelin. Mm-hmm. And um, I also there's like a lot of background about how Leia recognizes Crate because of that one time where she stumbled upon that on crate with um with Amelin in um in Pr- Leia Princess of Alderaan by Claudia Gray which if you're longtime listeners also know that we love Claudia Gray so mm-hmm. it was really fun to see that yeah. kind of stuff in the book yeah they reference her planet too it's what is it it's Gatalentia Gatalenta yes yeah and yes. anyway it was like oh hell those people <laughs> Yeah, and then it was like when she when she was dying, I forget the line and I don't have it written down, but it was something about how um, the way that she was going was like the way of her people and her people would be proud of that. And it was like, well, we, we know that because we know what Haldo was like when she was younger. And mm-hmm. that was really great to see as well. Yeah, especially because in both in uh, both for Haldo and Leia in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, they both have such strong ties to their planets. And both Haldo and Leia talk about their homeworlds. And at one point, Leia talks about Brea and how Brea would feel about um, certain actions that Leia was taking. And, and, you know, it was just nice to see those characters kind of remembering where they came from. Um from so long ago. I don't know. It just kind of added a nice layer to the book, I thought. Agreed. Agreed. Um, okay. So anything else before we dive into the character section where we have a lot of notes? So we should probably just like let's <laughs> go for it. Characters. Forge ahead. <laughs> so welcome to part two, um, the characters. Uh, this is traditionally our favorite part of the podcast and we have a lot of notes and it's going to be a lot of us going through the book and reading so i hope you're okay with that and let's get going first 
What did you think of the Luke prologue? Oh, God. The Luke prologue. I, You guys know I was so anti-spoiler for the movie The Last Jedi. I was just like, hands off. Don't show me anything. Um, like, all I watched were trailers. That was it, pretty much. At least I tried to keep it that way. But with the book, I was like, give me all the spoilers. <laughs> I wanted to see <laughs> everything from the book. And so I got spoiled about the prologue which is fine, you know, take your spoilers when you want them. I sought it out. Um, but I, it just gutted me. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> what's <laughs> happening? And I, cause I remember Pablo Hidalgo and Jason both tweeting about how the first line of the last Jedi book is like the, one of the craziest first lines of any star Wars book. And they were not lying. Uh, but in general, I really liked the prologue. I know some people kind of have mixed feelings about it, but I really liked it kind of giving us this playing a little bit with this alternate timeline of what could have been like Luke Lars. That just sounds weird on your tongue. You know, it just doesn't fit mm -hmm. right. Um, and I like how even though that vision, that dream was really appealing for Luke, he knew it wasn't right. There was a restlessness to it in the book. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed too how at the end of the prologue, Luke kind of knew that the Force was breaking through to tell him something, even though we know as viewers that Luke has blocked himself off to the Force. And so the Force has kind of resorted to um, – building these dreams for Luke as kind of a signal. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. What did you think about it? I'm not sure. I think the way that you described it makes me like it more because it is more of like an awakening and the force trying to tell him something. And I mean, I obviously I got that from the book. I, I read the book, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it just, it's a little shock value-y to me. Um, and, but it, it worked. It works. It works just fine. I, I guess I just am not thinking too much about it. Is that bad? Maybe. No. No, it's not bad. No, I think you're right. There is definitely like a shock value to it. And and we were – I mean, you read that spoiler with me too. It's like Luke Skywalker stood by his wife's side. <laughs> like, whoa, what? <laughs> um, I know. But I think as it goes on, it definitely – I don't know. There seems there's more meaning to it. I think as it go on, as it goes on. I mean, you always want your first sentence to be a hook, and that was definitely a hook, for better or worse. <laughs> oh, for sure. And the thing is, is that I think that it. You, I mean, you said this before that it it really kind of like keys into the fact that Luke has always been restless to help to do something greater than him, and um, I feel like you get that at the very end, finally, where he's been. Um, going to this, he's gone to this island to die, but Ray has like reawakened this, um, you know, this longing to help to rise to the legend that he is. And this vision does play into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I see that. Yeah. I think, but I think it definitely plays into what we're going to talk about a little later with the idea of the cosmic force and it having its own will and purpose and um, almost like a character itself in a, in a weird kind of way and kind of showing us that this was, this never could have been Luke's path. This never could have been something for him. Like he was destined for something much greater. And the, the weird part about it is knowing Luke's story. When you read this, it, at first you're like, oh, he's got a wife. Like, that's so cool. But then as it's kind of going through the minutia of what he was doing and, you know, calling him Luke Lars, it's unsettling because we all know that it's 
not right, um, which Luke does too in the mm-hmm. dream. So I don't know. It's 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 definitely interesting. It's something I want to revisit, and especially after episode nine, I think. But it was definitely a um, a ballsy choice to open your book yes. <laughs> with that. And to that, I give Jason Fry so much props yeah. that he went for that, and that Lucasfilm was like, "Yeah, sure, do that." <laughs> That's great. And Cammy too from like deleted scene yeah. of New Hope, like crazy. I know. When I saw her name, I was like, "Oh my god, Hi. Cammy." <laughs> I haven't thought about Cammy in years. I haven't thought yet. <laughs> Cammy is very low on my list of Star Wars like trivia that I know, but it was like, oh wait, he married her <laughs> in this like crazy dream world. That's who he picked to marry. <laughs> it's like I know, I know you don't um, watch Arrested Development, but there's this one part where uh, never mind. It's funny. It's a funny thing. It's a funny joke that if you watch Arrested Development, it's always like her, her. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's that's how I feel about Cammy. I kind of chuckle. It's kind of funny, but I don't I don't watch Arrested Development. So, <laughs> okay, so I had we this isn't this section isn't super well organized in our notes, so I'm just gonna dive in. Okay, to the first thing I put down because I wasn't sure where to put it in our notes. Um, but page one ninety five in the book is when Luke and Yoda are chatting and they're having their. They're come to Jesus, or I guess they're come to Yoda, come to force chit-chat, if you will. Um, (laughs) And as you guys know, Yoda has never been my favorite character, which still feels blasphemous to even say that. But this is a safe space. It's true. And part of the – as some of you know, part of the reason why Luke was – or Yoda was always a struggle for me was because he was this great Jedi that I felt like – should have known more about what was going on than he did. And for what he did know, I felt like he didn't act in the way he should have. And over the past couple of years, I've kind of come to realize that that's, you know, that's part of the tragedy is that you just want to shake him by his big Einstein ears. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, what's going on. What are you doing? But in, um, We've talked about this in our last Jedi review, too. I actually really enjoyed these scenes with Luke and Yoda. And particularly what everyone's been quoting is Yoda's line of, we are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. But I absolutely love this addition that Jason Fry added in the front. Um, And it says, then he, Yoda, sounded faintly regretful. We are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. And that word there, regretful, I feel like this has just like solved all my Yoda problems. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> yes. Because it's like, because I never felt like in the original trilogy, Yoda portrayed the regret of being a part of the downfall of the order. And I, and I think that makes sense from a practical standpoint of the fact that the prequel wasn't, the prequels weren't made yet. And so kind of all of these, these, um, these plot holes hadn't exactly been filled in yet by George, so it kind of makes sense. But my like chronology self wants to see that progression of Yoda realizing that the Jedi made mistakes. It wasn't just that Anakin fell to the dark side. There were a lot of pieces at play. And I never felt like Yoda really got there in the original trilogy for me anyway. And so the regretful were there. I'm like, oh, it's like Yoda gets it, and to an, to a certain extent, Luke grew beyond what Yoda could teach him. 
And that, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that Yoda still didn't have things to teach him. He did. But, you know, it talks about in the book how Luke didn't immediately go back to, you know, creating a new Jedi Order um, right away because Luke knew that there were mistakes from the Jedi Order that he didn't want to repeat. And so I don't know. I just I really love that addition of the word regretfully because I was like, oh, Yoda gets it. And it was like a sad I don't know. It just. I really liked it. Thank you, Jason Fry. <laughs> um, but I, I really appreciated that because we, we all, I feel like we always hold Yoda to such a high esteem as this great Jedi master. And I don't know if it's just when I came into Star Wars, but I've never viewed him that way. Or I think I, I think I viewed him as a great Jedi master, but one who, in a way, like wasn't living up to his full potential in the timeline we saw him. Like he wasn't the great Jedi master when we came into the prequels because the dark side was kind of clouding everything. So we never got to see him that way at his prime, like his real prime with the Jedi order at their prime. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I okay. mean, I think it's just so <laughs> fascinating to me that um, all it took for you to understand Yoda and kind of have some sort of a, you know, appreciation for Yoda. And appreciation isn't the right word. Or like No, I think appreciation is it's not even an understanding. Like I, I get it. But yeah. I, but like you now Yoda having that like understanding of the past is something that I don't think we really a hundred percent saw mm-hmm. in all of Star Wars. And I think that just the the word regretfully faintly faint, faint yeah, faintly regretful is is just a really great addition, and I'm happy about that. Yeah, it's because it's like intellectually knowing the whole saga, you you're like Yoda must have figured this out, but it's never in the in the stuff, um, and that's partly due to just how the stuff was made. You know, first the original trilogy, and then the prequel trilogy. You know, um, but I really I'm really glad he added that in there, and I'm excited to watch the Last Jedi now, thinking of that. Uh, phrase faintly regretful when I'm watching that scene. So yes. Anyway, those are my really deep looking Yoda thoughts to start us off. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I wanted to touch on is the fact that this book really did a really great job of characterizing the First Order to me, yes. and like I, I got, I came away with it with a complete understanding about not complete because we can't necessarily have a complete understanding about what there any anything is about in the sequel trilogy until it's all finished but um i really did understand hux's motivations more the general first order its upbringing how it exists and like how it runs really and i i felt like i understood hux a lot mm-hmm. in this entire novel and um i just kind of wanted to read page uh, 29 Um, Let me get to it. Okay. Um, This is Hux's, like, stewing on the First Order's purpose. (laughs) I think Hux (laughs) is just eternally stewing. (laughs) That's just the best way to describe him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so this line starts with, PV and his generation saw the First Order's impending triumph as a restoration of the Empire, not, realize, not realizing how that only, that only proved their obsolescence. They couldn't or wouldn't see that the regime they'd, they'd served was not merely gone, but superseded. The First Order was the fulfillment of what the Empire had struggled to become. It had distilled and perfected its strength while eliminating the weaknesses. So to me, this kind of just brings up a lot of thoughts about um, what 
the first order is from Hux's point of view. Um, and I think that it's so interesting to me because Hux and the first order itself aren't really letting quote the past die. Like we hear Kylo Ren say, and now it's like a famous quote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, instead they are taking parts of the past, striking away the weakness and like trudging forward. And I'm not saying like that, that's a good thing, but to me that feels like a whole theme of the entire sequel trilogy and like new yes. Lucasfilm. Yes. And I just, I think it's so fascinating to me because it's like in this way, I I completely understand the point of view of the First Order because at least I I think I understand Hux and I understand his motivations because I honestly think that he has a clear head about how to run this like really hateful regime. (laughs) And that is to build upon the past hateful regime and like call the weaknesses from that and um, to me, that is just in direct opposition of the way that we think about Kylo Ren, who's so hell bent on like cutting out everything from the past and starting anew and being something completely different than what he was. I mean, we see that at the end of um, the throne room battle, right? And mm-hmm. um, Kylo is presenting that to to Rey and starting something completely new and like forget the Sith, forget the Jedi. But what Hux is saying here isn't necessarily that at all and that's not what the first order is about so again it just reinstates to me that hux is a very clear direction of where the first order should go and that does not align with kylo ren and it just brings me to my overwhelming thought that i i can't this this book has (laughs) really 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 driven home my theory that hux is totally going to stage a coup over supreme leader kylo ren Kylo will have no idea how to do this. It's very clear to me that Hux knows what he wants and how to get it and the direction that he thinks the First Order should go in and will stop it. Nothing to get his way, including killing his own father, which we know he did. And um, I was just really fascinated by that. What did you think? Savage Hux is savage. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I completely agree this. the Reading the First Order parts, I've... The last time I remember being like interested in the Empire Dark, not not Dark Side. I'm always interested in the Dark Side, <laughs> um, but the- <laughs> that was a really creepy laugh. I'm sorry. Um, the last time I remember really caring about the goings on of you know the the evil organization in Star Wars was in Lost Stars uh, by Claudia Gray, and this book definitely did that for me. I did not expect to be really intrigued by the First Order, and I was. Um, and kind of what you pointed out about how you know this whole idea of letting the past die, and how you're not actually supposed to let the past die. Like that's that's pretty clear through everything in this book, and it's even clear with the First Order, which is really interesting, I think. And two, it just goes, it just emphasizes that the First Order is not where Kylo belongs. Um, it's not where Ben Solo belongs. He nowhere in the book is he really at all concerned with what the first order is doing um it's <laughs> no. really not until the end when he's the quote unquote supreme leader that he even shows any slightest interest in killing the resistance i mean i guess he does at the beginning when he's doing his tie fighter run but even then he's immediately distracted no no no, no. he's the the reason why he's doing that is to prove himself to snoke well, at that point yeah. that he isn't just a child in the mask and that 
he he's so angry at that point he wants to lead this strike on the rebellion to prove to his like master that he is something greater than what he thinks he exactly. is exactly but it's also one of the few times that we see him talking about like any kind of strategy um when it comes to like destroying the resistance but and you're right too i mean it's it's exactly that wanting to prove to snoke but immediately he gets distracted by his mother you know like mm-hmm. he's <laughs> um he's he really shows no interest in the resistance, but it's what I think is so interesting is kind of what we've heard people like Ryan talking about with that whole line, let the past die. We really, in a weird way, we kind of see the first order do that the best. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I know it's so weird. (laughs) They're the ones that are taking the, the quote unquote best, most evil parts from the empire and from, um, even the Jedi, which we'll touch on later, and making that a better version in the first empire, in the first order, I'm sorry. Um, and what I think is really interesting too is Snoke talking about that too. It's just, it's right in the throne room scene where he's talking about a little bit about the rise of the first order and how it was Snoke's knowledge of Palpatine and as Palpatine as Sidious and the empire that led him to be able to lead the charge in bringing up the First Order out in the galactic wild. Um, And they're really picking and choosing what they want to take from the past to put into the First Order. It's really crazy. (laughs) I know. It's weird. And just to me, this really comes back to the idea that I think that some fans who watch this movie really do come away with the idea that you know, what Kylo said is true, that, like, you're supposed to let the past die and kill it if you have to. And, like, that's the whole theme of The Last Jedi. But really, that's not the theme. Yeah. And I I have I've brought in a quote from Ryan Johnson that he said in December to Slash Film. He says, this isn't a bridge quote, but he says, I also think if you're leaving the past behind or cutting it off, you're fooling yourself. The real way to move for- forward is building on on the is by realizing what you take and what you leave from the past and not holding on to it closely. And here, it's like, the First Order is totally doing that. Yeah, they're on <laughs> And it. they're doing it well. <laughs> yeah, and they have so many ships. It's like unbelievable. So many AT, like, oh my God. They're like, they're they're winning. And it's it's clear. And it's like, I want all the characters to realize that that's the only way that you move forward. And I feel like... We're, we're going towards that way, but um, it's really interesting to me that Hux is presented to me as the person who is clearly very evil, but has his head on the straightest in all of The Last Jedi, especially in this novelization. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Hux has his head on the straightest because he's no, definitely very no. ruled by his emotions, too. Um, just different yeah, emotions. and his lust for power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what I another fun thing about this book that I think definitely um, – What's the word? Uh, They played up or I guess I noticed more in the book than in the film is this uh, contrast between generations too. And I loved how uh, I think it's PV and Akbar. They both talk about Hux and they're like, he's just he's this young guy who has a lot of power, but doesn't really know what he's doing quite yet. Like he, (laughs) he doesn't have the wisdom that I do as a wizened general and leader and commander. I mean, I think it's interesting that both of them, both on the rebellion or the resistance and the first order, both talk about Hux that way. Um, But I mean, as far as like first order leaders go, you definitely want Hux more so than you want Kylo Ren, a hundred percent. 
but in in regards to the to the Ryan Johnson quote, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that that's going to be Kylo's lesson in episode nine, in which obviously you and I think will be a return to Ben Solo. And I think in a certain in a certain extent, Ray has already learned that um, she was running from her past just as much as Kylo was, um, and she what Kylo was able to do for her in an ironic turn of events is made her accept her past. And what Ryan says there, that mm-hmm. quote, you know, it's realizing what you take and what you leave from the past, not holding on to it too closely. And Ray was holding on so closely to this idea, to this hope, this desperate hope that her family was someone with a capital S, you know, and they weren't. And it was once she accepted that, that she was able to leave it and move forward and really start to embrace who she was and her place in this story. And Kylo has to do that as well in episode nine, and he hasn't yet. Um, He's been running from his past. It's funny because Ray was running from her past, not really knowing what it was. I mean, she knew what it was, but she couldn't accept it and in a weird way kylo was doing the same thing even though he had this like really you know royal lineage um but he was running away from all of the good parts of it i don't know i think kylo's relationship to the past is very complicated given snoke um and the like you know your heir to the dark lord son of darkness kind of thing you know mm-hmm. yeah totally I, I mean the theme of the past and i feel like we're going to be talking about how kylo views you know, his past and how Ray views hers and forever. Like we're going to be talking about that one forever. Mm -hmm. But in this moment, I think that it's really interesting that Hux recognizes that the only way forward is to, you know, call the weak parts and move forward with the best. Yeah. Yeah. Hux, uh, Hux is a sneaky little critter. You got to watch out for him. <laughs> he is. He's like a little weasel. Yeah. <laughs> but this book, though, like overall, I feel like I completely understand Hux now. And I mean, I felt like that coming out of The Last Jedi. I think I've said that on air. Like, I actually genuinely like the character of Hux now. I think that he's so interesting to me just because I think that he is um, the direct opposition to Hux in a way that I feel like people think that Ray is. And I feel like. Of course, Ray is in direct opposition to Kylo, but in a different way than Hux is. And I feel like they are mm-hmm. in clear competition um, for something that I think that Hux really wants. And then Kylo doesn't. He doesn't want it, but he has it. Yeah. So it's it's really fascinating to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Let's Can we move on to the Force? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Also, just a caveat, this whole discussion about the Force is probably going to be all over the place because the Force is all over the place. So just deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the Cosmic Force is something that gets brought Mm. up a lot in the Last Jedi novelization. I feel like more than we've ever seen it before in any other realm of Star Wars, Um, really except for the animation, which, Mm -hmm. of course... (laughs) <laughs> animation is all. <laughs> okay, so getting right into the cosmic force, um, something that I came away from this novel as well as the Hux thing, but I really got an understanding of like how the Skywalkers are 
part of the cosmic force. And I feel like that was really kind of driven home (laughs) in this novel in a couple of instances and how um, they are instruments of the force. And I think it's just so fascinating. It adds so much to like how we think about the Skywalkers and like in turn the Skywalker saga, quote unquote. Um, it, It really like mantles them at the center of how you know, the living force feeds into how they are part of the cosmic force. And, um, you know, we see, we've seen the, I've mentioned this on previous episodes too, because I'm like very obsessed with this. We've, we have seen the cosmic force and the living force presented. I think the first time we ever saw it defined this way was in the Yoda arc with Qui-Gon. And it's just so fascinating because that is the arc that Yoda learns to, um, become part of the force when he dies and basically he becomes part of the cosmic force and this book solidifies that the skywalkers have always been tools of the cosmic force and so i'm going to read a quote from page 218 if you have the the this version you can read along um like his father skywalker had been a favorite instrument of the will of the cosmic force that made it essential to watch him this is from snoke's point of view by the way And once Skywalker endangered Snoke's design, it had become essential to act. And so Snoke drawn upon his vast store of knowledge, parceling it out to confuse Skywalker's path, ensnare his family, and harness Ben Solo's power to ensure both Skywalker's destruction and Snoke's triumph. So to me, it's very clear that Snoke isn't part of the Cosmic Force, was never a tool of the Cosmic Force, but his understanding of that makes it very it makes him able to control it or like assume he's controlling it. To manipulate it. Right. Yeah, to manipulate it. And I mean, we've theorized for a long time and it's been hinted at about how Snoke has been totally groomed by, I mean, Kylo has been totally groomed by Snoke for his, like, basically his entire life. Leia says it in The Force Awakens. It was Snoke's, you know, he seduced our son to the dark side. Um, And to me, this, like, really kind of not bust this wide open, but kind of confirms this to me in a much grander scale that Snoke realized how important the Skywalkers were for not only the galaxy, but the force in general, which is like all around them and preyed upon that last Skywalker, that new Skywalker and knew that he, I mean, what did he say? What did he say? He said, harnesses Ben Solo's power to ensure both Skywalker's destruction and Snoke's triumph. And it's just, really interesting to me that that is brought up as a key theme in this novelization. And it just kind of, again, underscores a lot of what we saw in The Force Awakens in The Last Jedi. I think this quote completely like changes everything for me, honestly. I think this quote really does blow the door open on everything that has been going on with the Skywalker family. I mean, <laughs> just that first, that in the middle there, Snoke drew upon his vast power, parceling it out to confuse Skywalker's path. He's talking about Luke there, not Ben. Um, yeah. So, uh-huh. I mean, it just goes back to all those theories about how the the vision that Luke saw when he was getting ready to kill Ben maybe wasn't really the future. It was Sky. It was Snoke confusing Skywalker, I know. which is just crazy because it's, you realize it's that crazy. all just been pawns in Snoke's game. And now that Snoke is gone, it's like, whoa, like what's going to happen now? Um, and I mean, I think you're right. It just, it, it also just solidifies the Skywalker's place that this is their saga. And I think adds to another reason why 
one, importantly, Ben Solo will be redeemed, and two, that there's a good chance that he's not going to die in Episode Nine as the last Skywalker, um, because the cosmic force has been using the Skywalkers for so long. And the important thing here, too, is to realize that it points out that the Cosmic Force uses the Skywalkers as a favored instrument, not the only instrument. Um, There Mm -hmm. are other instruments, i.e. there are other people that have important roles to play in the galaxy, i.e. Rey. And I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just, just the way that you just said that, it really does kind of like... It makes me think about the whole chosen one prophecy, mm-hmm. um, and how yes, <laughs> yes. yes, it has been it has been defined that Anakin was the chosen one. Yes, he was. He was born of the forest, etc. He like he came, you know. He restored the power, whatever. Right? We know all that, but it is so much bigger than that because his family lives on, and Luke, in in a way, and you've talked about this before. But Luke, in a way, is also the chosen one, the person that was able to use his love to save the galaxy. And it's it's so important to understand that the Skywalkers are at the center of the story because they are instruments of the cosmic mm-hmm. force. And all that to say, this book also does confirm that Rey is also part and an instrument of the cosmic force. In fact, she has so many awakenings to understanding that she doesn't control the force. The force controls yeah, her. Yeah. And it is, um, it's really great to get that realization because Ray is just as much of a part of it as those, like the core, like Skywalkers. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, it is, a, I feel like it's just a different way to define the chosen one prophecy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it definitely, I mean, we always talk about the, um, the Star Wars as mythology, as allegory um, a lot of the times. And I think this just confirms it even more that the cosmic force, you know, there's this separation of like the mortal energy almost. And then the cosmic force is this mythological greater power um, even. And this greater power has selected the Skywalkers to be like in a way that like the Olympian gods. Um, that's, that's a very loose metaphor, but it's like pick them to be um, influencers in the galaxy for better or for worse. And it kind of gives them this elevated status in the force. Um but I like how the book, like we said, doesn't point out that they're not the only instruments. Um, they're just favored instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked this quote from page 177 where Luke is talking about the cosmic force. And it says, it, the cosmic force, had an awareness and a purpose and a will. A will that had been silent, dormant after the demise of the Sith, only to wake once again during Luke's exile. This quote I just think is endlessly interesting and it makes me want to rename the force awakens the cosmic force awakens <laughs> um, <laughs> because this, like this is like this is pre like this gets into conversations about like predestination you know the cosmic force had an mm-hmm. awareness and a purpose and a will and multiple times throughout this book it refers to ray and kylo as being instruments of the cosmic force and for having destinies and when you tie that back into a lot of the promo material for the last jedi 2 with snoke's line of you know fulfill your destiny you know that that makes a lot of sense i think with what we're learning about the cosmic force too and interesting as well is that it says it'd been silent after the demise of the Sith. So after the return of the Jedi, there had been no 
like purpose for the cosmic force at that time Mm -hmm. because things were in balance because like you said earlier it's like anakin and luke had kind of both fulfilled this prophecy of the chosen one in in different ways Uh, but it wasn't until luke's exile i.e ben solo's fall to the dark side that things were off kilter again and it Mm -hmm. was like as darkness rises light to meet it and it's ray and she's this other instrument of the cosmic force who rises up as Kylo is falling to the dark side. Yeah, and we were given that like amazing scene that I am basically still screaming about where um, Rey contemplates after the throne room scene happens and the hall door maneuver happens um, and she's standing over Kylo's you know, unconscious body and she's considering whether or not to kill him at that point or to leave. And ultimately we know she walks away and doesn't kill him. Yeah, so that is on page 260, and it, it like, straight up blows my mind that we got this, and it was, like, my wish fulfillment, really, um, because in this scene, Ray has this awareness that, I mean, obviously, we come away from it understanding that Ray is a compassionate person. She's not going to kill this person that she shared so much with at this point, even though he has wronged her previously, Um but she also understands that it's so much bigger, which is what we hear, we hear Luke say, mm-hmm. which, again, isn't in the movie, but it's in the book. Um, and the, the quote is that I think is just so good is on page 260. Ray had learned that the force was not her instrument, that, in fact, it was the other way around. Just as Kylo was its instrument, despite its determination to bend it his will to to bend it to his will he would learn one day she sensed the force wasn't finished with him and that meant kylo's life was not hers to take whatever future she thought she saw ahead of him ray would wait however difficult that would be to do so as the first order warships descended on crate she would wait and the future would unfold as the force willed that had always been true the difference was now she understood it and finally ray has this realization that this is her place She's lo- she's been looking for her place for so long in in the galaxy. She's been looking for her parents. She's been looking for a sense of belonging everywhere. And yes, to some extent, she finds it in all these people that she has met, in Han Solo, in Ben Solo, in Luke. Um, but in this moment, she finally understands that it's not it, the the Force has its ideas with her, and she has just has to learn about how she can make her, I don't know. I, it, it, to me, I just have this overwhelming understanding that now Ray has an understanding of her mm-hmm. place and it's not the place that she really thought it was going to be. It's not with another person yet. It is with, you know, her an understanding of how the force works with her. I, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's this understanding and acceptance that it's not right now. Um, because it says earlier yeah. in that passage, too, that um, Luke's heir had been to assume that Ben Solo's future was predetermined, that his choice had been made. Her heir had been to assume that Kylo Ren's choice was simple, that turning on Snoke was the same as rejecting the pool to the darkness. And I think that was that was her mistake in being naive to think that it's as easy as that. Like, okay, great. We, we fought together. We killed Snoke. Like, let's go. Um, and for Kylo, there's so, like, there's so much in there that he hasn't come to terms with yet. And I think Ray realized that I think she's still confident in that vision um, but just that it's not going to happen exactly the way she saw it and not on her timetable. 
that it's going to happen on the cosmic of forces course. timetable. And one thing I think is really interesting in, I guess, in just regards to like the Ray and Kylo, Raylo relationship too, is this line um, on 261 that says, and that meant Kylo's life was not hers to take whatever feature she thought she saw ahead of him. Now, when I first read that, I assumed I interpreted it as Kylo Ren's life was not hers to take as in he was not hers to save. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people have read it, have interpreted it as like hers to kill. Um, like her, it was not her place to kill Kylo Ren at that moment, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a fair interpretation, but it, it's interesting, like knowing our own biases about these characters, how like I interpreted that line immediately. How did you interpret it? I'm just curious. That's interesting that you say that. I mean, I feel like I just saw it both ways. And I think that hopefully it remains true because I really just don't want Kylo Ren to die. So <laughs> I think if Kylo Ren dies, um, it's definitely not going to be in the hands of Rey. No, I don't think so either. And mm-hmm. it's it kind of begs the question, if they're both wills of the cosmic force, like, wh- why? You know, like, they, they, they would have to kind of they're they're the yin and yang they are so interconnected they're connected Mm -hmm. on a red string what is it um and i feel like they would have to die this is getting very speculatory now but they i feel like they would have to die together just because but who knows because that's the will of the forest (laughs) (laughs) you know like who knows (laughs) yeah i think um i think the reason why i interpreted the way i i did was because of the second part of that sentence which was whatever future she thought she saw ahead of him and we know that Ray saw a future where he was Ben Solo. Um, and so I think that's kind of why I interpreted as, you know, her his it wasn't her life to take as in to save, to bring him back to the light side. And um, because of the future she saw with him, it wasn't as easy as just killing Snoke. For as monumental as that was, that's not, you know, one action doesn't make a redeemed man. <laughs> um, it's going to be more than that. Uh, and and then just kind of going into the whole uh, Kylo and Rey as this balance, and and I think that that theory is really scary. The idea that they could only like they live and die together, but I think it's mm-hmm. kind of true because I think this book really has built up that they are a balance for each other. Um, even what you just spoke to earlier about. Um, Sorry, about them, like, both being instruments of the cosmic force. I think that's one thing, too. And then one of my favorite little passages was from page 250 when they're talking about the um, lightsaber, when they're both reaching for the lightsaber. Um, And it says, And she, Ray, could feel the kyber crystal at the heart of the weapon, seeking a resonance, trying to find harmony where there was only dissonance. Caught in their tug of war, the crystal seemed keen and the t- seemed too keen into the force, a whale that Ray could feel in her bones. And it's like the kyber crystal is seeking belonging <laughs> and it feels <laughs> a belonging between the two of them. And it's searching for harmony and balance. And the we talk about this all the time about needing to do an episode on lightsabers and we haven't done it yet. But like the... Yep. Anakin slash Luke slash Rey slash Kylo's lightsaber in this, like in the sequel trilogy, <laughs> is like so curious because 
it's like the lightsaber, the kyber crystal knows who to go to, like who it will respond to. And I think it's so interesting how it doesn't respond at all to Kylo in The Force Awakens for obvious reasons. But once we get into The Last Jedi, it's responding to both of them equally, and then it's caught between them. Um, which I think really speaks to the like the turmoil that's going on within both of them. Like their emotions are almost equal in that moment, and the we kind of see that symbolized in the lightsaber itself too. How it's caught between them, it doesn't know who to go to because both at this point are kind of it's worthy crazy. of wielding it in a weird way. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, I, I, I just I think it's so cool. And then finally, at the end when Ray takes both those pieces. And Leia says, we have everything we need. And it is a broken, you know, version of this, like, historical figure now that has been through all these different movies. And um, even though it's broken, it is still part of the future of Star Wars. And it's like that or like in the it, it is a figure of the past and we have everything we need. It is Ray and this like broken lightsaber. It just it gets me every time, mm-hmm. especially since, you know, the past like four years have spent a lot of time kind of building on this kyber crystal mythology and kind of, you know, understanding that the crystal calls to you and um, it can bleed like we know about um, Kylo Ren's like crystal and how it is all jagged because it was like improperly made, um, which is, again, like a really good symbol for Kylo himself. It's not like a perfect red lightsaber at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's it's just really cool to me that we end this movie with Ray having these broken pieces of like two parts of this legacy lightsaber and even though it is, you know, broken and in turmoil and the past is like really kind of uplifted at this point, it's Leia saying we have everything we need and uh, we feel this sense of hope because we're going to take these pieces of the past and kind of improve on them in the future some way. Mm-hmm. We're going to, uh, what's the quote? Restore the past to redeem the future. <laughs> yes. From the Rebels animation. Quote. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> But I think I mean you're right. It's like not not to joke around, but it, it's so symbolic with the fact that she's holding these broken pieces of the past, broken from Anakin's mistakes and from Luke's mistakes, and then she's this catalyst, this instrument of the of the cosmic force who's going to make sure um, that those mistakes aren't repeated for future generations, and that the the galaxy is not plunged into more turmoil and evil and. I, yeah, I, I really like how the movie ended with that and with the lightsaber like that. Totally. Um, I feel like we have still so much to talk about, so we should probably move on to um, talking a little bit about Ben Solo, okay. even though we're, we're still talking about Ben Solo. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so a couple things this that this book kind of shows that I think are really interesting, and maybe we could just read some quotes and kind of make some comments. But um, <clears throat> on page 83... Um, I found this quote really fascinating because this is after the torpedo has kind of gone and Leia is now suspended in the air and Kylo's like stressed out about it. Um, <laughs> on page 83, he says, yeah, he's very stressed. <laughs> he says, if he had known, he could have stopped the torpedo, freezing it in space with a thought. How he couldn't sense his mother, the shock that had shattered his focus, leaving him breathing hard behind his fighter's control yoke. 
Um, so it's it's really it. I mean, right after the movie, we were all like, "Oh my god, did he shoot that Tie Fighter that was you know right next to him?" And it brings apart, it brings upon like all these different questions about like when we read that, when we see the movie, obviously we're like, "Oh, he's filled with regret, regret," and he's like overwhelmed with his emotions. And we mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of the the show, but this the book really drove home to me that he is super regretful about that choice and um about how he you know couldn't focus at this point to even realize not only that he shouldn't be where he is in this ties in the ties islander but instead he couldn't even save his mom at that point and he's filled with regret and this is a, a guy who like two days before has just killed his his father so mm-hmm. um what i liked about all of Kylo t- kind of talking about Leia is that he never refers to Leia as Leia. He always talks – he refers to her as mother. And he mm-hmm. does that with Han. When he talks about Han, it's, you know, I killed Han Solo. He doesn't say I killed my father. Uh, you know, so there's this kind of dissociation he's trying to do with Han in a way. Um, maybe because of what happened uh, – probably because of what happened in The Force Awakens and also their relationship prior to The Force Awakens too. But with Leia, it's always mother – um, you see other people talk to Kylo about Leia and about General Organa, but I think for the most part, whenever Kylo thinks about Leia, he thinks about her as mother, which is of mm-hmm. course a little bit more endearing than Leia. Yeah, and it 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 suggests a more deep relationship, and that he is still fond about this person. And mm-hmm. I think we know that. I mean, um, in that scene, I'm not going to read the full quote, but he's expecting to find her angry at him for something but instead he he doesn't see that at all he senses worry and sorrow and love and kylo is so thrown off by that that he misses a torpedo mm-hmm. and it's in that moment where i'm sure kylo goes back and he's like "Ugh, i was overwhelmed in this in his dark side state he's like oh i was overwhelmed in this emotion i missed that i missed the opportunity i let my emotions get the better half of me mm-hmm. and instead of you know he and he's like uh i should have either one, I should have done that myself, which I don't think that he was he was going to do that at all. I think the movie suggests that. But and two, that he wasn't able to stop that. And to me, that doesn't really suggest a villain who's completely steeped on the dark side. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah, I mean they they break this up a number of times throughout the book as well about how like moving into you know talking about Kylo with Snoke. Um, Snoke talks mm-hmm. a lot about how Kylo is conflicted and was never able to let go of the light side weakness. Like it's still a part of him. Um, Kylo, I mean, Kylo has been a character defined by his conflict with the darks, with the light side for the past two films. And everyone knows it. Luke knows it. Mm-hmm. Leia knows it. Ray knows it. Snoke knows it. Everyone <laughs> knows it. <laughs> Kylo knows it too. He just, he keeps trying to push it down and it's not, it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to see i can't remember if i wrote down a quote about that but i mean they kind of talk about it leia references it when she in that moment actually when before kylo doesn't kill her when he she's having these memories of ben solo as a child and she talks about him um in her womb as this like this bright beacon in the force but i think it's shot through with a vein of darkness and Luke reassures her that, you know, for powerful light, there is powerful darkness. And I, and then Snoke kind of makes clear, too, that 
there's still that light in Kylo Ren. Um, There's still that piece of Ben Solo in him, um, just as there was always kind of this darkness in him from the get-go that was never a part of who, of Snoke's manipulation of Kylo. There was always dark side in Ben Solo. It was just, you know, who was going to get the upper hand, I think, throughout Ben Solo's childhood and events led to him becoming Kylo Ren. Mm Mm-hmm. Moving on to Kylo's relationship with Snoke, um, you know, when he kills Snoke on page 241, there's a good line that says, this is Ray, kind of from Ray's perspective. She sends Kylo's excitement and his hunger as if he were a beast finally freed of his to- of its tormentors. I just feel like we can't get more confirmation that Snoke was in, in Kylo's head than what we get in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear to me that Snoke was you know kylo's ben solo's abuser and um it's i just i find it i i honestly do think that we're going to get definitely so much more information about snoke's role in ben solo's turn to the dark side etc i gotta stop saying etc but um the (laughs) etc i i just feel like as that becomes clearer, it's going to be an exaggerated version of Palpatine. And we think about how Palpatine was in Anakin's head from, you know, when he was a nine-year-old kid mm-hmm. to in like watching him, you know, what do you, what does he say? We will watch your career with great interest. And it's yeah. like, Snoke is an exaggerated Palpatine mm-hmm. completely to the point of, you know, Pal- obviously Palpatine is Darth Sidious. I, honestly, I think there's a quote in this book about that. Um, Palpatine is Dark City. Darth Sidious understood that Anakin was a powerful tool of the cosmic force, but maybe didn't define it that way. And Snoke kind of understands that that's, that's Kylo's place. And I know we've talked about this, but there's a couple of kind of scenes and lines that kind of clue me into this even more. And it, it makes that moment when Kylo kills Snoke all the better because we know that finally that voice that was in Kylo's head for so long is relinquished. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, the whole the whole Snoke versus Palpatine thing with Kylo and with Anakin. I mean, both of them, like you, that great quote, watching your career with great interest, Anakin. You wonder if Palpatine mm-hmm. would have been able to manipulate Anakin the same way Snoke does Kylo if Palpatine hadn't had like the Jedi Order in place to kind of get rid of (laughs) in order to get Anakin. It's like Palpatine set up, like did all the hard work basically for Snoke to come in and be able to get Kylo to his side. It's like, in a way Snoke had it so much easier because he didn't have to deal with the Jedi Order. Totally. One thing I think too, and we talked about this a little bit with Hux as well about how members of the First Order and the Resistance both talk about Hux in kind of the same way, is how both Snoke and Luke talk about Kylo in the same way, particularly with the name Kylo Ren. Um, You know, on page 222, we see Snoke talking about Kylo and Snoke says he called himself Kylo Ren, but as with so much else about him, that was more wish fulfillment than reality. And then later on page 297, Luke says basically the same thing, but obviously in a much more sympathetic manner because Luke cares about Ben Solo. Um, He writes, Luke sensed that Kylo Ren was just a shell around the same broken boy he had tried so hard to reach. And, you know, again, it's that contrast between older generations and younger generations observing each other. But then, too, how... Both, you know, the evil and the good people are having the same 
kind of analysis of our central characters. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Something I just, when we're on that page of 222, I wrote in the margins, yes, I'm a terrible person. I write in my books. Um, <laughs> I wrote, um, so on that, on that quote, he had seen how to exploit the boy's feelings in, of inadequacy and abandonment and his mother's guilt and desperation to contain the darkness with, within her child, is what Snoke says. Um, and I wrote in the margins... In these final moments, Snoke thinks about how Kylo hasn't ever become the master of his own destiny and how he is this like slave to Snoke and he has has never really been who he thinks he is, which is, you know, Kylo, uh, Darth Vader's heir apparent. And um, he says wish fulfillment in terms of um, his, his name, Kylo Ren. Um, and I wrote also that this is Snoke's downfall. Um, as Ray and Ray and Ray calls it because he completely underestimates that they both are the per- perfect balance balance. Um, Snoke underestimates who Ray is and kind of completely underestimates this bond that he has formed too, which mm-hmm. is just hilarious. To yeah. Me. <laughs> and speaking of the bond, so there's mm. hmm. Hmm. There's a <laughs> lot of debate about whether or not the bond bond is severed by Snoke. Um, I mean, no, because it existed in after Snoke died. But I, it, in that moment when Ray closes the door on the Falcon, so no. Um, but I think what's really interesting to me is the so it, it's like when you have that interrogation scene in The Force Awakens when Ray accesses Kylo's mind. In that moment, since Snoke is so ingrained within Kylo Ren at this point, does does Ky- does Snoke realize that this one person has gotten access to Kylo's mind just the same way that that Snoke has? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that in itself is really interesting. And it's like you wonder then if if from that point Snoke realized that like oh this girl is really powerful as Kylo told him in the Force Awakens as well untrained but not stronger than she knows um it's like in, in that moment is that when snoke realized oh like i can bridge those these people's minds like they're really similar this is kylo's equal in the light and um this will be since compassion is his downfall you know kylo will lose focus and oh you know th- this is how we get kylo even further to the dark mm-hmm. side yeah, I think yeah. I think you're right because I think even this book kind of touches on it in the beginning after their first Force connection and Ray is kind of remembering uh, the interrogation scene in the Force Awakens and how I think she describes it as like doors opening um, in her mind mm-hmm. and they they open in Kylo's mind too and she even says something along the lines of she's worried like she opened something that now she can't close. And Mm -hmm. that just kind of leads me to believe that it's just further confirmation, I guess, for me that that bond opened in the interrogation scene and then Snoke just kind of built on it and intensified it to a certain degree. But it's like the damage is already done, like the connection has been formed. And I think at this point, it's like the cosmic force is kind of like, yes, into this. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Not all bad. This is not all bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah um just before we move on because I, I feel like we've been talking a lot about ben solo and we need to get to our uh, other amazing characters but um i do want to say that something i find 
super interesting and this book just drove it home was that back to our previous conversation about how Kylo really thinks that he should like get rid of the past and, you know, let it die. Um, when, you know, they touch hands and they have that moment and Ray sees the future, it's Kylo who sees the past. And it's like the force is telling Kylo, you know, care about the past, even if it's if it's Ray's past, sure. But the past, like, it matters to Ray and it should matter to you mm-hmm. as well. And um, I think that it's like if if they are instruments of the force, which they are, according to this book, then what the force is showing them, Kylo seeing the past is important in its own way. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost kind of like a follow Ray's example kind of thing. <laughs> like, oh, Ray yeah, was able totally. to accept her past and became better for it, and so Kylo should do the same. But and then and then it's it's weird too because Kylo's the one that makes Ray accept her past, even though he hasn't yet himself, which we talked about earlier. But mm-hmm. it's just you know worth noting again. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Leia for a brief few moments. So sad. Um, I think that one thing that this book has given us is like this wonderful gift of this amazing Leia portrayal that I think, you know, completely jives with the other portrayals of Leia that we've seen. It felt like Carrie Fisher. It felt like the Leia that we know and like getting those moments where she uses the force and kind of feels the force and yearns for her brother. And I was so overwhelmingly thankful for that moment at the end of the book when she breaks down and cries with Chewie And it was like, you know, in my head, I've been thinking a lot about how Leia is a character who is, you know, always so grief stricken. She's always has these terrible things happen to her, but we applaud her because she keeps going on and she keeps, you know, that spark of hope in the galaxy when like rightfully so. It's great that she's like that. But um, she never really has these moments to break down. And when we got that moment, I was like, yes, finally, like, yes. Leia gets to cry. She gets to feel for all these, you know, these people who have, you know, are gone. And I couldn't help but feel the same way. And of course, like when you're reading that, you're you're so emotional about Carrie Fisher too. And it makes you think about how a person can deal with grief. And yes, it is like you have to move on and you have to be hopeful and you have to, you know, find those moments of like, prosperity and hope but like you can have these moments of like completely breaking down in you know the arms of your oldest friend and I was just overwhelmingly grateful for that moment so thank you Jason Fry yeah that scene was really hard to read but really necessary uh because that's something that came up a lot in The Force Awakens was why Leia and Chewie didn't have a moment and so I'm glad that they got to have this moment here because they they're one of the few people left that really understands what the other has been through completely and both care just as much about the people that they've lost. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's really heartbreaking, but it's so nice to see Leia have that moment to grieve. And it reminds me too, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it was, I can't remember what page it's on, but Leia's talking about remembering Alderaan and like how sad it was that all those people perished. And she was like, she kind of thinks for a second, like, is this how Brea, my mother, would want me to remember her? Like with this tragedy? Because it was like, she tends to think about the tragedy more than 
like the greatness of who Brea was is kind of what was implied. And I can't remember the exact quote, but I think sometimes too, that's how we think of Leia for good reasons. But also it's like, we tend to define Leia a lot by the tragedies that have happened to her. Um, and I think we, a lot of, for the most part, we do a really good job of balancing that. Yes, Leia has had a lot of tragic things happen to her, but she is more than her tragedy and her actions mm-hmm. throughout everything that we've seen of her in, in any form of canon have always spoken to that, how she always pushes forward um, while kind of carrying those heartaches within her. And she finds a way to do that. Totally. I'm just, I'm, I'm really, really happy with this portrayal of Leia. And I, I never really, I mean, I thought that it would be a, because I think that the, the script allows for a lot of great Leia moments in The Last Jedi, but I'm really just happy with the book version as well. And I'm very grateful to that. Mm -hmm. No, I am too. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Leia and Luke and try not to cry. Sure. (laughs) Um, Because it was really hard to read those scenes at the end, but two, I think something that I hope gets explored more as well is Leia's feelings about Luke after Ben falls to the dark side. I think is really interesting because she, I think at some point in the book, she describes like shutting him out um, and forcibly not seeking him out in the force and like ignoring his force presence. And then it completely fades away. And she's like, Mm -hmm. Oh crap. Like now what? Um, Or like, it's too late kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I I just, I find that so relatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like, I mean, haven't you been in the situation where it's like you've been so mad or like, at least I have, or like, I never really wanted to talk to this one friend and then too much time goes on. And then I never really have that relationship and I can't reawaken that relationship because they're not there for me and they shouldn't be. It's just like, it's, it's so interesting too, when you bring in the dynamic, obviously of brother, sister across like the forest and this like space mythology. But I was just like, in that moment, I was like, oh my God, I relate to this so hard. She's so upset. She's so like angry at her brother in this moment. And it's so understandable. Mm -hmm. Like, of course she is. She trusted her son with him and this is what happens. And I mean, we know how the story goes. Luke is part of that Mm -hmm. story. Whether you like put blame on him or not, it is, you know, part of his error is part of the story of why Ben Solo turned. Yeah. So it it was just like, oh my God, that part was so relatable. Yeah. um, (laughs) This part from their whole interaction at the end on page 290, when Luke says, I came to face him, Leia, but I can't save him. And then from Leia's point of view, Jason writes, not long ago, she knew this would have pierced her to her core because what Snoke kind of implies through his discussions of Luke and and Leia and Ben and the Skywalkers is that this is why Ben was sent to Luke in the first place as a way to like secure his soul for the light side. And they couldn't do that um, because Snoke stepped Mm -hmm. in and manipulated the whole situation and they and Leia lost everything in that moment. She lost Han, she lost Luke, and she lost her son. And you're just like, oh, she's lost so much. She's lost so much. It's um, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. It's really not. It's not. Which is why I'm just really happy that we have that cry moment because it is not fair. And she's allowed to have those emotions. She just doesn't have to be like this strong warrior all the time. She is allowed to break down like that and have those like irrational moments where she completely shuts out her brother. It makes sense to me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. She needs those moments more. I think she does get that a little bit in, um, that's like the whole premise of the Leia comic, right? Is that she like keeps, not the whole premise, but part of it is that she's like trying to move forward and everyone's like, why aren't you breaking down? Yeah. Your whole planet was just destroyed. they, They call her Ice Princess. And mm-hmm. and they they say that like she doesn't have emotions and um she isn't you know she's overwhelmingly like underwhelmed <laughs> about certain things and people are finding yeah. off putting and mm-hmm. I mean we know that's not true and that that again it's like a very relatable trait that like that's how you push through that grief um but yeah that's why I was like finally in this like perhaps the last portrayal that we're going to see of Leia, we have this moment where she breaks down and it's great. And I got to stop saying it's great, (laughs) but um, moving on to Finn. So this book is very heavy on Finn. Like his story is like very much a part of this as, as it is the movie, but it felt even more so in the book. And to me that felt like less, like we talked a lot about Ben Solo and Ray, but um, there's only so much you can talk about them just because their futures are very undefined. And Finn has such a clear arc in this book slash movie that it can be expanded upon so much in this book. And it was. And it was very clear Finn's motivations, where he started and where he ended in this book to me. What about you? Yeah, I think um, Finn really does have the most self-contained arc throughout The Last Jedi. I think we talked about that a lot in our movie um, review, and I think that's really laid out here in the book, too. Kind of, I mean, like, it pretty much, I think we get the most deleted scenes with Finn and Rose in the book. Yeah. Um, out of all of our characters. Everything else is pretty much on par with scene by scene with what's going on in the movie, but I feel like we get a lot of added content with Finn and Rose, which is interesting because I know a lot of people that was like kind of their least favorite storyline in um, the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wonder how they feel about it having so much extra oomph in the book. Well, I, f- um, I feel like to that, because that, that was a comment that you and I had, honestly, is I feel mm-hmm. like in the book, though, I was able to give these characters like the t- rather than like wanting to skip ahead to the parts that like I really care about, like Luke and Kylo, uh, Luke and Kylo and Ray and etc. I feel like I was able to kind of relish in these moments of Finn and Poe and Rose and kind mm-hmm. of understand so much more about them because I was able to like sigh and kind of like soak in these moments, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I feel like the book gives you a lot more about like why Finn is in the resistance. I mean, we do see this in the movie. We do see him like the moment he wakes up, he says Ray, but in, in the book, obviously there's like a through line up until like Canto bite basically in the father's that like, the reason why he's there is to save and help Ray and to like, you know, make sure that everything is okay for, for Ray. And like the only reason why he's there is because of Ray. And like, that's true. That's the only reason why he's there because um, he didn't, he didn't really have a place in that. And just like every character in this entire thing, they're trying to find a place in the world. And um you it becomes clear by the end that even though obviously Finn really really cares about his friend so much that he found he finds a greater purpose it's no longer 
I need to go find Ray. I need Ray to come back to us. Everything. How how is Ray going to find us? You know, the resistance. It is. We are going to go help him. We need to go out and face Luke, and we need to, mm-hmm. you know, help him. And you know, it, obviously, by the end of the movie, he's like willing to like sacrifice himself, and it's a very emotional moment. And by the end of that, we fully believe that he's going to do that because he had this like really clear arc and only underscored by this book. Mm -hmm. There was, this is actually, this is probably the one thing I wish was different in the book than what was in the movie. And it's right at the very beginning and it's after Finn and Rose have concocted their plan and they've given it to Poe and Poe basically gives them the go ahead and in the movie, it cuts to Finn giving the tracker for Ray to Poe. And that's actually one of my favorite Finn moments in the whole movie because to me, it's kind of signifying that he's starting to understand that this is a little bigger than just Ray. He's not all the way mm-hmm. there yet, but it, you know, it's him kind of giving up that control of that tracker, which is a really big deal. And I think, I mean, like I said, it's one of my favorite moments of him in the film. But in the book, he's kind of, it's, he's more goaded into giving it up and both Rose and Poe are like, you know, if she take comes to the tracker, she's going to come to Canto bite. And like, she can't come to Canto bite. So like, you have to give it to Poe. And he's like, uh, like he doesn't really want to, um, he's kind of wishy-washy about it when, until he finally gives it to Poe. And I don't know, it kind of took a, for me, the moment in the film has always really resonated with me with Finn's character. Um, and I, it was kind of the one thing I, I didn't like how it translated into the book. Um, and so I wonder if maybe that scene played out differently originally in the movie. Um, and maybe that's why it is written the way it is in the book. But it was kind of the one thing where I felt kind of took away from my appreciation of that storyline. But in that same vein, I feel like the book spends a lot more time going through Finn's um, like removal of his attachment to Ray in that way. Um, They spend a lot more time talking about it. Him and Rose, really Rose watching Finn kind of let go of that attachment to Ray. Mm -hmm. So in that, I guess in that sense, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. How did you feel about Rose's portrayal? Because in a lot of ways, like most of her scenes are with Finn. So how, how did you feel about Rose? I really, I really loved Rose in the book. Actually, I, I know some people haven't like, I've seen some people kind of give it the moniker of like she's like she's almost a little jealous of Ray, um, but and most of their scenes are told from her point of view, mm-hmm. which I, I think is interesting. We don't get a lot directly from Finn's point of view, and and what we do, it's not nearly as much as we get from Rose's. But I really liked all of their. I like their banter so much in the book. I thought they had great ban- banter. I thought they also had really challenging moments with each other as well. Like when they're at the casino and they're talking about, um, you know, Finn says something along the lines of, uh, you know, I have to get back to to help Ray or something, and. Rose is like, why are you always doing this? these things for Ray? You, you know, you're always focused on her. That's not cool. Um, this is about so much more than Ray. And Finn is like, well, wouldn't you do the same for your sister? And uh, Rose is kind of taken aback by that because it's true. She would do that for her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I liked how they – I feel like we got a lot more of them coming together. Um, 
I don't know. I like their relationship a lot more in the book than I think I do on screen. I think just because we had more time with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And it, that's like just the nature of these novelizations is mm-hmm. you you come out of it knowing more about the character from the book. So then obviously, mm-hmm. like, you like that book version of the character better. And I I found even all the references to Paige and I feel like you get like a really clear idea of Rose's upbringing as well and like all the what what she mm-hmm. was like as a kid and her relationship to animals and how she sees Canto Bite and she's so much more spunky in the book than she is in mm-hmm. in the movie and I mean now we have the which we're talking we're going to talk about next time but we have the deleted scenes and everything and even her like biting Hux's finger and like doing stuff yes. like that I mean that is just you know gold for character moments and it's mm-hmm. you you totally believe that she would bite Hux's finger from the book version of Rose because she's so mm-hmm. spunky, she's so sassy, and it made me. There were so several moments where I was like laughing out loud at things that she said. I love her. Yeah, so I loved at the beginning after she has stunned Finn for the first time, and he's like on that transport or whatever, and they make their plan. He's like, "All right, let's go tell someone," and he's like, "She's like, you're not coming with me." He's like, yeah, I am. And she goes, you're a weirdo traitor. I know. I'll file your report. <laughs> like, okay, girlfriend. Get it. I love her. <laughs> and there's another part where Finn, like, doesn't know how to fly something. And she's like, it's really similar to an escape pod. You know all about that, don't you? I know. You? I remember that. I was like, yes. <laughs> like, Burn. <laughs> Queen. And I think Finn literally says, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> so great. And I, I'm, again, I keep saying this, but I'm just like really thankful that we get that side of Rose. And um, mm-hmm. it makes me even more excited to see all the different relationships she's going to form now that she's like a big wig in the resistance. She's and her own hero. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, we've talked about this in our past like discussions of, you know, the certain characters in The Last Jedi, like coming off the movie. But, um, Rose is definitely a character, and you've said this before, that has that never hesitates, and this book just completely underscores that. And she knows what she needs to do, and she knows like how to steer certain people in the right direction, and she mm-hmm. understands like why people are in in what they're doing, um, and like kind of manipulates it that way, and like kind of calls them out for that. And it's just so funny. Mm-hmm. Love her. Yeah, yeah, and I love too when she starts thinking about Finn and how Paige would react to Finn too and what Paige's thoughts would be about Finn and she's like kind of getting advice from how she thinks her sister would give it to her um, just about like mm-hmm. kind of giving Finn a little bit more of a chance and she's like yeah she'd be right like she would like him um, like pay pay and Rose I know pay <laughs> pay it's so sweet, it's, so sweet. <laughs> it's not okay it's really not okay <laughs> it's not um, it's so not. let's talk about Poe and Haldo because I was I feel like we got a lot of Poe, which is great. And we, we've also talked about this before in The Last Jedi. But there's something that I find so interesting about a choice that Jason Fry made in this book. He completely omitted the Haldo like initial speech that she gives when she takes over after Admiral Dacey, De- 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 whatever. And um, 
you don't Poe doesn't see that, and we don't get that sort of echo that we see at the end where he says like we are the spark that will light the fire to burn mm-hmm. the which which is like what we saw Haldo say first. So like in the movie, we understand that like oh she, he has like adopt adopted like everything that he knows right in this moment from like what he learned from Haldo. But that that quote is from Leia, isn't it? Doesn't no, 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 Caitlin. The quote that Haldo says is, um, "Hope is like the sun. Um, if as long as you just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there." That's a different quote. All right, and then we are the spark. That one's from yeah. Haldo. Yes, and it is to me. It feels like a missed opportunity. But that said. They Jason Fry brought it back and brought in something I thought was such a brilliant move in the the fact that Poe had been, you know, coordinating the coordinates to jump to hyperspace um, for that one final time after they had they in that like really misconstrued plan with Rose and Finn involved in order to um, turn off the tracker and because of that, that was what enabled Haldo to make the famous Haldo man- maneuver and, you know, jump to hyperspace. It was because of Poe's, like, reckless haphazard plan in which he had, you know, gotten the ship already. And if he hadn't have gotten the ship already, then Haldo wouldn't have been able to save the Resistance in that way, in that moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no. it was like a great mirror to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked that moment. I thought generally that the book made Poe a lot more sympathetic than the film did. Um, I think at one point he like it, it describes him as him like helplessly asking Haldo what the plan is, and it talks to you about how you know everyone that's on the bridge is like avoiding his gaze, like the way that Poe describes it anyway, is that they look uncomfortable with what's going on too. Um, So I think the book made him a lot more sympathetic than the film did, because I feel like in the film discourse, I kind of viewed them as equals. Like, yes, Haldo should have told him what was going on, but she didn't necessarily, she didn't need to. Um, Whereas in the book, I kind of felt more on Poe's side of things, which I thought was interesting. But like you said, I really liked how um, at the end, you know, Haldo is able to do what she did because of the coordinates that Poe had put in for his own ill-informed coup on the bridge. And then, too, on page 249, I liked how they included this moment of Poe realizing that that's what's happening because he knows that he set in the coordinates and that's how he figures out what Haldo's doing and that, you know, she has a plan and the plan is ultimately her sacrifice for the resistance. And it, like... It just kind of ties their whole storyline up really nicely, I thought. Totally. And I I do understand that, like, in the movie, they wouldn't have been able to kind of say that gracefully. There's no Mm -hmm. way to really be like, oh, yeah, the coordinates are all plugged in. Perfect. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to get Haldo being like, oh, great, because of what Poe did, I am able to go to Mm Hyperson. Kind of, like, ruins the surprise of what she does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in on the book, on the page, it really just kind of drives that point home that they mm-hmm. learn something from each other and that's how they move forward. And it's really, really cool, which is, again, a theme that is kind of echoed in every single character relationship that we get, right? Balance. Yes, exactly. It's really cool. Coming together. So we have talked for so long <laughs> about the characters. I feel like we should move on to Lectio Divina. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm ready. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. 
Women always figure out the truth. Always. So welcome to part three. This is Lectio Divina, which we did last time when we discussed the last time we discussed a novelization, which was the Revenge of the Sith novelization. This is a tactic that is like super loosely um, taken from the very popular podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And what we're going to do, if you haven't heard, is we are going to each give each other a passage and they, they kind of sit with it for 15 seconds or so. And um, then they kind of, they describe how that passage makes them feel and what they think about that. And it's very fast and it is kind of like that first analyzing of what this quote could mean. So I'm going to give, I'm going to start with Caitlin and I'm going to give her a quote and she's going to kind of have this moment. Okay. So turn to page 116. Okay. I'm here. Okay, so the quote is, She didn't speculate, knowing it was useless. Like everything else in the galaxy, whether they succeeded or failed, discovered that their destiny involved neither of the two, would depend on the will of the Force. Still, she could wish them luck. So how does this quote immediately make you feel? Well, it definitely reminds me of things like the cosmic force and the will of the Force. Um, Absolutely. And this is from... Maz talking after she talks or thinking after she talks to Poe, Finn and Rose. And I really loved everything that came before this passage and including this particular passage. And it really underscored just how much Maz has seen in her life and just how old she is. (laughs) She's very old. (laughs) Um, But I think this passage really emphasizes that um, about how she knows that there is a greater force in charge here, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. um, and that it has its own will, and that ultimately is what's going to succeed, especially in kind of the current time they're in. Uh, like she knows that there are movers and shakers, and things are happening in the force. Mm-hmm. It's always Maz is such an interesting character. We only saw like maybe five minutes of her in this entire movie, but. She is that connection, clearly, in a way that obviously we haven't seen her in any movie before The Force Awakens, but she clearly knows all these characters and how they are, and she understands people and, you know, emotions more than anyone else in the Star Wars galaxy. And just from that quote, I see your eyes, I know your eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I just think that that final quote really drives home the whole cosmic force thing that we had been talking about before. Yeah, absolutely. It was a good one. All right. So my first one is going for Charlotte is going to be on page 180. Okay. I hope you got there before me. Okay. And it's right at the top. She Mine's a little longer. Sorry. She'd spent so many nights in the deserts of Jakku, an orphan in the half-buried wreckage of a forgotten war marking each night with a new scratch in the metal until she was surrounded by thousands of gouges. There have been too many to sensibly mark time, but that had long ago ceased to be the point. The rows upon rows of slashes had become something else, but she didn't know what. A testament to her insistence that this vigil had a purpose, maybe, or perhaps a ritual to hold back the solitude that was always at work in her, eroding her hope and whispering that she would wind up like everything else abandoned on Jakku. A shell, empty and purposeless. Mm. 
that quote makes me so sad, Caitlin. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, but I do like that it kind of um, meditates on the fact that she had been marking those markings, which was when we saw that first thing when we're kind of like getting to know Ray in her ATAT in her living space. Um, we understand now it was more of a ritual than it didn't mean anything except for these were how many days she was left alone. And in that way, I do think about those markings on the wall as a reminder for her as to how lonely she was and how this like desert child had been, you know, trying to find a purpose and each day she had to like make a, a tick on the wall to kind of remind her to like keep going each day. And it makes me think of like, you know, when you're, I don't know, it, it, it just, it really brings up a lot of like memories and thoughts and it makes me very sad. <laughs> it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good quote. Yeah. This quote definitely solidified for me just how lonely Ray was. I don't, it's like I knew Ray was lonely, but yeah. this really gave me like something to hold on to and tapping into that emotion. And that that one part where she talks about this ritual eroding her hope, she's like, oh, God, it's so sad. Um, and then at the end when it says she's, you know, she would become like everything else on Joku, a shell, empty and purposeless. Um, Kylo Ren was also described as a shell of a man in this novelization, too. So again, it's just like a parallel between the two that there's a very thin line that separates them. Yep. This is very sad. Very sad. Um, Yeah, I think that you said it best, though, about how like it really solidifies how lonely she was. And like we understand and we we uh, we can watch back The Force Awakens knowing what we know now about her, how her parents left her and how that kind of like plays into why she kept BB-8 and didn't sell him to Ankar Plett and everything. But it just kind of like thinking about those ticks on the wall and like her entire life, her little dolls and everything. It just makes me very, very sad. (laughs) Um, Okay. So are you ready for your quote? Yes. Okay. It's on page 177. Okay. The sound grew to a crescendo, a thunderclap that was followed by a bewildering, bewildering, blinding rush of images. Seek your center, find balance. Luke's body felt like it was on fire. He knew it wasn't. He accepted the feeling, denying it power over him, and then let it ebb. In its place came a familiar sense of warmth, of belonging, of finding himself a part of an endless lattice of connections that held him and everything else, each fixed in its proper place. Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this, This scene, both in the movie and in the film, just give me such feelings of... Like sadness, but I, I like in this moment how it's like a return home for Luke, the way it's described. It's like it feels – it's like he dove back into the forest and it was like a shock to his system when it describes like his body felt like it was on fire, but it wasn't actually. But then once he kind of leaned into it more, there was this familiar sense of warmth and belonging. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I'm – it's like I'm home now kind of thing. And it's him rediscovering his purpose. And I think it's a really important moment, I think, for Luke too. Oh, of course. It's like him coming back into and like accepting who he is, which is 
part of the force and he had been rejecting this for who knows how many years. And again, if we kind of take that word belonging and think about what Ma said to Ray, um, the belonging you seek is not ahead of you. I mean, is not behind you. It is ahead. Um, and it's like Luke knows his belonging in that moment. That's that's his belonging. He knows, like he's supposed to be part of the force. He's supposed to be an instrument of the cosmic force. He is supposed to, you know, help achieve and bring balance. And um, I, I I feel like this overwhelming like sense of how Luke knows who he is in that moment, and it like just really makes me think of Ray and how she was still trying to find out who she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything from the sequel trilogy, like, we talk a lot about, like, themes in Star Wars and how hope is kind of this overriding theme. But the sequel trilogy has really given this theme of, like, belonging and as, like, a a main theme for the sequel trilogy. And we see that really with all of our characters at some point or another talking about having a sense of belonging that I have to believe in episode nine. Like, that's where our happy ending is, is when all of our characters have their belonging. And mm-hmm. I mean, Rose or Finn says it to Rose in this book too, uh, after they rescue the Fathers. And Rose is like, where are we going? And Finn says, where we belong, which is with the resistance. Um, yeah. And that's a big moment for him too. And Luke talking about his belonging in the force is a big moment for him. And then Maz, that quote you just said, that's a big moment for Ray too. And so I think, I, I don't know, I really mm-hmm. like how that's become a central thing for all of our characters on some level or another throughout the sequel trilogy so far. Definitely. Okay. So my next passage is from page 293. You got there before me again. Okay. (laughs) All right. This is kind of midway through the page. His, His father, Hux's father, Brendel, had told him how the Jedi had maintained their power by seizing force sensitive infants and training them as warriors. The Jedi had agreed to lead the Republic's clone armies, but turned on Chancellor Palpatine and tried to seize control of the Senate. The clones, ironically another order of soldiers trained from infancy, had prevented this betrayal, turning their guns on their former generals. The Jedi had deserved their fate, Brendel said, but there was much to learn from their methods, as there was from the training regimes of the Republic's clones. The Elder Hux had forged elements of both orders to create an army of soldiers trained as soon as they left the cradle, an army that had originated under the Empire but achieved its full glory under the First Order and the Younger Hux. So, in a sense, the First Order's stormtroopers were the Jedi's legacy. So interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it really just ties it all together. And that, yeah. that's my that's my first impression, is that, like, even more than I thought, it's all interrelated. And I, I really do like that um, kind of mirror effect that you get from the fact that the, the clones in in the Jedi times were clones and that was the stormtroopers. And then we have um, them becoming, going from the Republic to serving the Empire. And that in itself is a big shock value of the prequels is the fact that the Jedi did at one point control the clones. And in that moment, they they weren't using them really for good. They were using them for war and they were bred for war. And that was another part of the Jedi's downfall. So that really links it up to me um, for how that history and how 
you know, this one wrong move can have detrimental effects, even like, I don't know, how long is this? Like 60 years later, right? Yeah. 50 years later? Something like that. Long time. Yeah. This like whole passage like had me shook. (laughs) Just the line of, I I don't think I'd ever, I mean, I guess I had, but I don't know. Maybe the way this was phrased just like really brought it front and center for me about how both the Jedi and the clones are regimes and organizations trained from infancy. And I was like, damn, that's so so intense. And then the little snide comment at the end about how, so in a way the first order was the Jedi's legacy. You're like, oh my gosh, it is. (laughs) This is why we need a first order stormtrooper uprising at the, in episode nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we got glimpses of that again in the deleted scenes. Um, which we'll talk about next episode <laughs> um, with like the, the the stormtroopers kind of turning on on Phasma or kind of questioning Phasma mm-hmm. um, in that like final showdown. And to me, that was like they, they cut that scene. So it really like it makes me think like I hope that they have some sort of retribution in the next film because, you know, Finn got to find his belonging because he was brave enough to leave and and get out but not everyone can do that so you know finn needs to liberate (laughs) the first order stormtroopers i need it to happen i want it to happen rose talks about it a little bit at some point when she's talking about um the stormtroopers and she's like well maybe they're all just like they're all just like finn um they were all stolen from their childhoods and brainwashed into this system too um and what does that kind of mean like, are there any others that are like Finn too? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was interesting. But I, I really loved this passage. Again, I did not expect to like really like the first order parts of this book, but I did. I know. Me too. It's weird. Not really my thing. But then, here's the thing, Caitlin. We care so much about Kylo Ren that we're so interested <laughs> in his like. I don't know, like his entire like surrounding. So then this is how this is why we're interested in it. I guess. It's just funny because like Kylo Ren doesn't really care about the first order, so <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Okay, so are you ready for um yours? Uh yes. Hold on one second. Page two oh four. Okay. I'm ready for this one. And a ter- terrifying realization bloomed in her mind. Kyla's churning emotions weren't just about himself. They were also about her. (laughs) This this quote just, like, kills me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It gives me such Raylo feels. (laughs) I just, I can't even handle it. Um, And there's, I think you sent it to me, actually, this gif of them in the elevator, because this is when the scene takes place, is when they're in the elevator, of them just staring at each other for like a hot second, literally a hot second. And then Ray just takes a step back and they put over this quote over the gif of Kylo's turning emotions weren't just about himself. They were also about her. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Everyone, us, Ray, Kylo, we're all like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So shook. (laughs) Yeah, really shook. I think this, Coming away from The Last Jedi, like just to go on a little bit of a Raylo tangent, it's like I think it's so clear from this book that Kylo has really deep feelings for Rey. Um, 
I think you can definitely argue that Ray doesn't have the same kinds of feelings for Kylo, but I think Kylo's feelings are very romantic in this in this book. I think for me that seems really clear. And of course, you know, I'm putting my own bias into my reading of the book. Um, I interpret a lot of Ray's interactions with Kylo as kind of that romantic "what if" kind of tension, um, but I can see how a lot of people might not interpret it that way. But for me, Kylo's are very clear. Um, especially in this moment, Kylo's churning emotions, like just that, the, that word, those word choices together. I don't know. It, it shook me. It shook me. <laughs> me too. Me too. Um, I love the word bloomed in her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a flower. Obvi- you- I'm not- yes. And I, I mean, I feel like there is definitely that sexual implication as well, but I I do think that obviously it was like it's like this almost a, a wonderful blooming of a flower, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's very positive. It's like she she recognizes that like oh my god, the reason why I'm here is to bring Kylo Ren back to our side to save us, and this could be the way that we win, and it's all working. You know, yeah. I mean, she does say a terrifying realization bloomed in her mind. Yes, but you know, terror isn't always the worst thing ever. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like a, it's like an OMG kind of moment to put it more in our terms. I think, I think this is the moment where I think Ray starts to realize that maybe things are a lot more complicated than she initially thought. Um, coming into the supremacy, it was like, she tells Luke, she's like, I'll, I'll go, he'll turn, we'll come back, bada bing, bada boom, it's done. <laughs> and yes. I think in this moment, she realizes that there is a lot going on inside this guy, and it involves her much more intimately than I think she had really recognized initially. Yeah, completely. All right, so my next one is on page 110. I'm there. Yes, Rose, we've got to bring this plan to someone we can trust. Whoa, hey, whoa, she objected. When I said we, I didn't mean us. You've got to be kidding me. We could save the fleet. Rose shook her head. You're a weirdo traitor. I'm maintenance. I'll file your plan. (laughs) You mentioned this before. I did. I forgot I put it here, but it's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love the whoa, hey, whoa. When I said we, I didn't mean us. <laughs> it is funny. This quote to me, just like just zeroing in on this quote, um, we got to bring the plan to someone we can trust. Whoa, hey, whoa. When I said we, I didn't mean us. It really kind of reminds me of Finn and Ray's like interaction in The Force Awakens a lot. Like they got to get the the map to Luke Skywalker to the mm. Resistance and it's like we have to bring this plan and it's like that's what finn knows now right and that's what he's presenting to her oh i love that i didn't even think of that comparison i just thought it was funny (laughs) it is funny (laughs) i i should have continued the quote because just under that finn goes poe finn said desperately worried she was about to stun him again I'm Rose, remember? She replied, annoyed. <laughs> it's like, and you just like remember that Finn is like <laughs> laying on this gurney <laughs> effectively. And Rose is like, my name is Rose, not Poe. <laughs> Finn's like, that's not at all what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that point when, 
in the last Jedi. I mean, it's the same scene, but in the last Jedi, when um, Finn like steps in front of Rose to like mansplain something, and then Rose like gets her due and like <laughs> yes. steps back in front of. It. I remember the first time we saw that, I was like, "Oh my god, what's about? To- oh my god, oh my god, that's not happening! Please don't, no, that can't happen." And then I was like, "Yes, <laughs> that ex- like what just had needed to happen happened." I was mm-hmm. really happy. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And too, I kind of just thought about it. She. Um, at the end, when Finn, when they're on crate and Finn is like, we've got to go help everyone or like work with the resistance. They make a point of Rose saying, oh, we like you're a part of the resistance, like us uh-huh. we and the resistance. So it's nice how they kind of play, how Jason played with the, that word choice again. Totally. Um, OK, so you ready for your next quote? Yes. So go back to page 293. Okay. Hux looked at Ren's face and saw terror, naked and undisguised. That fear meant weakness and opportunity. This is such a quote for you to pull because you are so obsessed with the Hux coup. And yeah. <laughs> this this feeds right into that too. It just underscores how much Hux like that fear meant weakness and opportunity. You can just hear, you can like see Hux's sly smile um, when he realizes mm-hmm. that. I mean, Hux sees fear in Kylo Ren's face. That's crazy, right? I mean, that's kind of crazy considering everything that Kylo Ren has done to Hux. And Hux sees fear in his face and is like, I'm a stage of coup. It's happening. He's, <laughs> he's not going to last. <laughs> that's kind of what, like in opportunity, you can already see the wheels turning in his head. It's. It makes me think of in The Force Awakens when Huck says, like, careful, Ren, don't let your personal feelings get in the way. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, we understand that Hux and Kylo Ren are complete, like, rivals and that Hux understands a weakness of Kylo Ren that maybe Kylo doesn't really want to recognize him in himself. And by the end of The Last Jedi, I feel like we have this complete understanding that Hux knows all of Kylo's weaknesses and he that like the entire first order witnessed his like ultimate weakness which was you know getting <laughs> getting back his uncle for um wronging him as he thinks all those years ago and he puts everything on the line to ultimately be embarrassed by Luke's like sly hand mm-hmm. and Everyone witnesses it, this, but it's it's only Hux that knows everything that went before this. And um, to me, it just really spells out to me how how much Hux is going to try to take over the supreme leader position, especially since that like one scene at the very end of the Last Jedi where Hux is observing Kylo on his knees in literally Kylo's like weakest moment at that point when everyone literally everyone has rejected him. Yeah, and. Hux like has that sly smile and he knows he knows that this is his opportunity and that the future for him is looking so much brighter than that person (laughs) who's on the ground right now but yeah in the book I mean Hux he talks a lot about how you know Supreme Leader Hux has like a nice ring to it (laughs) you know like he doesn't want Snoke there Uh either and he definitely doesn't want Kylo there so he he's living for this this is a good quote to pull Okay, and so the last quote we have is mine to you, and it is on page 92. That was a cute little rhyme. 
The Resistance sent me, Ray said. They sent you. What's special about you? Jedi lineage, royalty. Ray was none of those things. And after a moment's consideration, Luke seemed to sense that. An orphan, he said wearily. This is my nightmare. A thousand one of a youngling showing up on my doorstep, hoping they're the chosen whoever's, wanting to know how to lift rocks. Ugh. This is like totally jaded Luke at his highest point. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes me sad because <laughs> a lot of the quotes you're pulling for me make me sad. <laughs> hey, my rose one was funny. <laughs> True. But the, you know, I think a lot about how Yoda's last words were like, not last words, but f- like par- partially last words were like, pass on what you've learned. And in this moment, Luke is his most resistant. He doesn't want, you know, a thousand wannabe younglings showing up on his doorstep. And it's like he just really hasn't accepted his legend status at all. And he 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 failed this one time with his, you know, his nephew. But why did it take him so long to even start there? It really just starts to bring up a lot of questions about, like, um... I don't know. Luke's Luke's whole like he's so jaded in this moment. He doesn't want to train anyone. He he has this power, but he doesn't really want to share it. And he's done with that power. Makes me sad. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you went in a completely different direction with this quote than I did when I read it. Um, when I first read it, for me, I was like, oh, this is one of those meta moments, like where the book, the movie is talking to us as fans you know, that question of like, what's special about you, Jedi lineage, royalty? That's what all of us are thinking. <laughs> and then yes. him saying like, a thousand wannabe younglings showing up on my doorstep, hoping they're the chosen whatever. He's like, that's what we wanted Ray to be. We wanted her to get to Luke. We wanted Luke to be like, oh my God, I've been waiting for you. You're Ray Kenobi. Let's go. <laughs> you know? And it, it's, it's, it's so refreshing to me. You're right about that. I mean, obviously, it's well. You're right meta. too. Yeah, you're right too. Um, but I know for me, that's how I first read it. Like, yes, that was we all wanted Ray to be a somebody, mm-hmm. to be like a a Jedi lineage because she is a somebody and she's just not the somebody we wanted initially. Which I think is interesting because that really plays into for me our um, reaction to Kylo Ren too. Like, he's not the Skywalker we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you could say that again. Give but like, conversation. He, I can turn it back to Kylo Ren. <laughs> <laughs> I like the hoping they're chosen whoever's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, because it just—I mean, we just talked about that about how like they're kind of ab- abolishing the chosen one concept and going for like a more mystical sense of that in the future in terms of like the will of the force, which is probably how it should have been. Yeah. Um, it's still kind of a chosen one. It's like this. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. Of course. It's a different way of phrasing it. That is, is kind of exciting for what it means for the future. Totally. And it, it makes it even as it goes down we know how this entire scene unfolds, but whoops, drop my book. But um, how, you know, Ray is from nowhere. She's none of those things. She's not royalty. She's not Jedi lineage. She's not even a Jedi youngling at this point. She just wants to know her place. She's been seeing this for so long, and she doesn't really know what it all means. And um, Luke can help her and does help her with that. I feel like that's important to like understand. It's not mm-hmm. like Luke failed her. Um, she was that nobody that like defied his expectations of who was going to come and find him on the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
completely agree. Um, well, I think that's going to wrap up our discussion of this novel. <laughs> it was a long one. Yeah, I think now, <laughs> after this short period, we will wrap up our discussion. <laughs> 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 this has been really fun, though. I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad the Last Jedi book is here and the DVD. I'm just Star Wars, man. So good. And I am living for all the things that we're going to and keep just getting. It's like nonstop Star Wars every week. Yes. Um, I do want to say a big thank you to our amazing patrons. Amy, Amy, BJ, Brad, Brandon, Brian, Chuck, Connie, David, Daz, Derek, Diana, Aaron, James, Jim, Joanna, Kelly, Kirsty, Kyle, Lauren, Lynn, Matt, Megan, Neil, Robbie, Ryan, Serene, Cherie, Stuart, Susanna, and Suara. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. It really, truly means the world. Yes. And if you like what you hear and want to head on over to iTunes to leave us a review and subscribe, we would really appreciate that. It really helps our show out. So please head on over there. And if you're looking for us around the internet, you know where to find us at Sky Talkers Pod is our Twitter handle. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher. Charlotte's is at Clarity. Or you can also find us on our website, skytalkers.com, where we've got a bunch of stuff going on there. So definitely head on over there if you have any questions or want to get in touch with us. Um, but thank you guys so much for hanging in there through our novelization talk. And if there are things you want us to discuss in the upcoming episodes, please let us know. We would love to talk about those or any other questions you have for us. But until then, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.